Well, last week, Christians throughout uh, the world remembered the most famous death in all of history, that of Jesus of Nazareth. And today we gather to worship uh, in light of what for many people seems utterly improbable, that this man who was publicly executed by professional soldiers is alive, that he's been resurrected from uh, the dead, not in some metaphorical or spiritual sense, as we might say that the spirit of Martin Luther lives on in the civil rights movement. No, Christians insist that he was physically raised from the dead and was transformed into a new kind of existence, that he is now immortal. He cannot die again. Now, admittedly, it is improbable. It's outside of our experience. Bertrand Russell uh, was a British mathematician, a philosopher, and public intellectual, and he speaks for many people, and perhaps even for you, when he says, belief in God in a future life makes it possible to go through life with less of stoic courage than is needed by skeptics. A great many young people lose their uh, faith in these dogmas at an age when despair is easy, and thus they have to face a much more intense unhappiness than those who never had any religious upbringing. Christianity offers reasons for not fearing death or the universe, and in doing so, fails to teach adequately the virtue of courage. Russell is saying it takes more courage to be a skeptic than to hold any kind of religious belief, especially Christianity. Uh, he writes in another place that religion, I think, is primarily based on fear, partly the terror of the unknown and partly the wish to feel that you kind of have an elder brother who will stand by you in all your trouble and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing, fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death, and science can help us get over uh, our craven uh, fear. Science can uh, teach us, and I think our hearts also can, so that we no longer look for imaginary supports. And still in another place, uh, he critiques all forms of faith, saying this, uh, we may define faith as firm belief in something for which there is no evidence, when there is no evidence, no one's, when there is evidence, no one speaks of faith. We don't speak of faith that two and two equals four or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. Now, at one time, I would have very much agreed with what Russell writes here. Uh, I uh, was and still in some senses am, well, I have a skeptical side uh, to me. I'm not easily uh, convinced. I didn't grow up with a religious uh, background, and my skepticism reasserted itself with great uh, force when in my late 20s, I was seeking to understand just how it is that we can know anything at all. The question about how we know what's real and true is a serious question, and it's one that deserves careful thought. 
Today, I can tell you uh, that there are many solid reasons why ancient historians around the globe, believing and unbelieving, hold that the gospel accounts are among the most reliable documents uh, from the ancient world, that they should be read as reporting historical uh, truth given by eyewitnesses, and in Luke's case, a research historian whose work fits the very canons of history writing in his day. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written within 30 years of the events uh, that they narrate when many of the people who witnessed those events were still alive. Matthew uh, concludes his account of the life of Jesus, which Mark read to us this morning, with a report of what took place, of what was seen by both a group of professional soldiers and two women. He uh, gives their reports and includes two different explanations of what happened to Jesus' body, and they are both improbable. They both involve taking a step beyond hard evidence. They both require faith. Now let's consider each of these reports uh, for a moment, and then we'll uh, see the question that Matthew's uh, posing, because he's asking you as the reader to make a decision about Jesus. Now, first, what the two Marys experience on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, they head to the tomb uh, to complete burial uh, rituals. They are grieving. From a distance, they watch Jesus die on the cross. Uh, the spear that pierced the Roman uh, by the Roman soldier that pierced his side, they saw the blood and water flow out, that he was in fact truly uh, dead. They uh, watched as the tomb uh, was sealed. And when they arrived the day after Sabbath, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, that it was empty. They also saw an angel and they saw the soldiers. These soldiers were those who had been appointed to ensure that nothing disturbed the grave. Now the women claimed that an angel told them that Jesus had, was gone, that the crucified one, in fact, was risen just as he said it would take place. And they are given a message to take back to his disciples about where he will meet them. And the women obey, and as they're going, suddenly Jesus met them, and they recognized him. Now, the women report what seems like nonsense to many, something no modern, educated person would accept. And if you're skeptical, well, I sincerely can understand. The second report's from the guards. They went to the chief priests and told them of the earthquake, the angel, and that the stone had been rolled back, and that the tomb itself was empty. Maybe they left out how terrified they were and how they had fainted in the presence of the angel. An emergency meeting was held by the top leadership of the Jewish people, the people for whom Plan A to end Christianity was to have Jesus executed. They're the ones who had requested the guards to ensure 
that the disciples did not steal the body and then claim that he'd risen from the dead. The chief priests, after taking counsel, uh, bribe the men. They make it, in other words, worth their while uh, to say that the disciples came at night and stole the body while we slept. And they promised them that if the Roman governor got wind of this, that uh, they would intervene on their behalf. Now, this version of events is also highly improbable. The idea that the disciples stole his body while the guards sleep. Why is that so improbable? Well, it's because the discipline of the Roman army was very strict. Falling asleep at your post was not tolerated. Soldiers uh, who were found asleep uh, are often set afire by their commanders or stripped and beaten severely or just executed on the spot. And the Jewish leaders know this, and uh, that's why uh, they uh, promise to satisfy the Roman authorities. In every way, Matthew's account bristles with improbabilities. A great earthquake, a fearsome angel, uh, the guards reporting an empty uh, tomb and then being bribed, who give an entirely different account than what they actually uh, saw. And if you want to craft a convincing lie, if you wanted to persuade people that Jesus is in fact alive, you probably wouldn't write an account that looks like this at all. You wouldn't write an account that implies that professional Roman soldiers were overpowered by a couple of fishermen and a tax collector. As persuasive writing, it's pretty weak, uh, unless it all happens to be true. Now, reality can be stranger than uh, fiction, If you just think back to January of 2019 and someone told you that people would actually be ordering Chinese toilet paper from Amazon because, in fact, there was no toilet paper to be found in any store, you might laugh. You might laugh when they told you that this was because a global pandemic had completely interrupted life all over the world. Or how would you have responded in late 2001 if someone had told you that there would be a major land war in Europe, that Russia would invade one of its neighbors, and that they would actually not only not take the capital quickly, but actually they would be forced to retreat? Who would have predicted such a thing? Well, this story about the guards falling asleep If it's anything at all, it reflects a situation that was highly embarrassing uh, for the leaders. And the authorities in bribing them were simply making the best of what was a bad situation. They wouldn't be able to do what they intended to do, which was to silence the Christians by wheeling the body out of uh, the tomb and publicly demonstrating that, in fact, he was still dead. Now, Matthew reports four possible responses to these events. There's the response of the guards, and they are fearfully dishonest. They'd experienced the earthquake, 
they had seen the angels in the empty tomb, and they tell the chief priests what they knew, and they gladly take the money. They do not care about the truth. They don't care about what it may mean. They simply want to get on with their lives. The second response is seen in the leaders. They too were confronted with the guards' uh, report of an empty tomb, and their minds are closed. They uh, are certain Jesus is an imposter, he's a deceiver, and he is dead. And they don't stop to seriously consider what they've uh, heard. They're going to put a spin on it that will discredit the disciples and hopefully keep people from accepting the claim that will come that Jesus is in fact alive. Now, many people dismiss the gospel accounts because their minds are closed. They don't think that there's a God, and so it's not possible uh, for the miracle of being raised from the dead physically to take place. That Russell's right, that religion fills some psychological uh, need and can be explained by evolutionary biology as somehow uh, helping us survive or by some uh, neurochemical events in our brains. Here the basic question needs to be asked, how do you know that God does not exist? If the answer is, well, there is no scientific proof, then you need to consider that there are several faith commitments you have made in asserting that. One of the most fundamental is is that there is no other reality outside of the material universe. That commitment that there's nothing besides what's material is itself a faith commitment. The third response is the women who are filled with awe and a mixture of fear and joy. They know that they have encountered the supernatural in the angel and in seeing Jesus what was beyond all their prior experiences. And they respond with worship. Jesus' claims are true, all of them. He must be God to have come back from the dead. And last of all, there's the response of the disciples, his closest followers. Matthew, who was there, said they had a mixture of faith and doubt. Now, contrary to what you may think as a 21st century person, ancient people were not gullible and naive. And they did not think that being raised from the dead was a credible claim. It's true that as Jews they believed there would be a resurrection from the dead at the end of human history. But this is why they struggled with their doubts. Which of these responses will be yours? Well, I think there are three questions you have to answer to arrive at it. Is it possible that Matthew is right, that Jesus rose? Is it true that he did, and does it matter? Well, is it possible all depends on whether the God of the Bible exists. Now, there are actually many, many indicators in you and around you that the Bible's account of reality is true. For instance, how can you explain the way that art affects us so deeply? 
when we are struck by overwhelming uh, beauty, we sometimes reach for words like spiritual or transcendent to describe our reaction. When a scientist says that, well, our sense of aesthetic beauty served the survival of the human race and then got encoded into our genes, most people, not just religious people, would protest. That can't be. Beauty has to be more than that. The reduction of beauty simply to a genetically encoded response born out of the survival of the fittest leaves us cold. It runs against our deepest intuitions about wonder and joy that the music and art and nature have upon us. See, to stand in the National Gallery or attend a concert at the Kennedy Center and tell yourself that this experience I'm having is merely the fluke of, well, biochemistry, that in other words, it's an illusion, impoverishes it. Art makes us feel that there's something right about the world. Art awakens in us an intuition that there's more to the world than scientific materialism will admit. We all have numerous intuitions that there are things that are wrong and immoral, that there is evil and injustice, that life has meaning. The Bible's explanation for this is that an infinite, good, and beautiful God created the world. And this original goodness has been marred and vandalized by human rebellion. Now, Isaac Asimov was, well, he was a professor of biochemistry at Boston College, and he was a prolific author of uh, both works of science, but he's probably best known to you as someone who wrote science uh, fiction. He happened to be my graduation uh, speaker from college, and he told this uh, story about his own life, that he was raised as an Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn. He lived in fear as a boy of violating the Sabbath. But one Saturday, he decided to take a bus ride. And when he wasn't immediately struck dead by lightning, he concluded that, in fact, there was no God. His skepticism was fully confirmed in his mind. Now, you can always dismiss any spiritual uh, explanation, any evidence for the existence of God in the fortress of skepticism. But in a practical level, you can't live your life without the intuition that reality, that there's another reality beyond the things that you can touch and see and hear. It's just not possible to live uh, like this. Are you willing to seriously engage with these questions? Skepticism can actually be one of the ways that people escape commitment to a truth that they find uncomfortable, that they do not want to accept. Well, that still raises the, the question, is this true? Well, if you haven't decided as an article of faith, 
If you ha don't hold as a presupposition that there can be no God and therefore uh, no miracles, if you uh, are open to the possibility that in fact there are other realities beyond the physical world and that there's more than one kind of reality uh, to be described and truth, that truth that can't be duplicated in a laboratory, if you're willing to admit there are such things as historical truth and facts, then consider the evidence as Matthew sets before you. Now, first of all, Matthew brings forward female witnesses, and both in the Jewish and Roman world of the first century, women counted for very little. They had no social standing, and therefore uh, their witness was not admitted in a court of law. If the disciples were going to fabricate the story of the resurrection, wouldn't they have found better first witnesses than the women? People who would have been viewed as credible in their day? Well, of course, <laughs> they wouldn't have chosen women. Only God would do such a thing. He calls as his first witnesses women whose testimony would not be widely accepted. Second, there's the empty tomb itself. The enemies of Jesus who had him executed finally had him right where they wanted him, in a tomb. And Jesus' friends deserted him. Their hopes were shattered. Every one of the gospel tells us they were hiding, undoubtedly in part, because they were concerned that they would be next. Psychologically, it is highly unlikely that the thought of robbing the grave would ever occur to them. And it's even further improbable that had it had taken place, that they would have been able to overpower the guards. Third, Matthew tells us of the resurrection appearances. It wasn't just two women or 11 disciples who claimed to have encountered Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as we read earlier, claims that 500 people saw him at one moment in time and that many of them were still alive when Paul wrote those words. The resurrection alone can explain this. No attempt to portray this as some kind of mass hallucination is convincing. And fourth, there are really no other adequate and reasonable explanations to account for the bold witness of the first apostles and their willingness to be martyred or the growth and expansion of the church in the Roman Empire, which in ten ways of persecution sought to destroy it. The only reasonable explanation is that behind Easter faith lay the Easter event. Well, does it matter? Very much. Because the resurrection is the heart of the good news. It is the good news that God is at work in our fallen broken world to redeem it, that God's future has broken into the present. The resurrection declares that Jesus is God the Son, and this is why the women and the disciples worship him. Worship is the only response that is proper in relation to a risen Lord. Worship means that 
you uh, receive him and recognize him not only as Savior, but the very center of your life. It means you submit uh, to what he has said. You receive it uh, without question and live by it. The resurrection of Jesus is the springboard for mission. Without it, we would have nothing to declare, and because of it, we can't keep silent. That God has come, and in his love and mercy, both desires and is able to reverse all the fallout of the tragedy of our rebellion against him is the most exciting and hope-inducing news that the world has ever heard. And the resurrection of Jesus means that his power and his presence are available now. Jesus comes to his disciples and says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. And he promises to be with us, his followers, wherever we go. This means that he's in control of everything that happens in our world and in our lives and that his resurrected life is now at work in ours as well. The question Matthew puts to you as he ends his gospel this way is, will you believe and follow? If you don't believe, will you examine what faith commitments have led you to deny even the possibility of the resurrection? Will you open your mind and consider the witness that Matthew gives to the claims and the person of Jesus Christ? It is only those who exercise faith who get to meet him. The women meet him only as in obedience to the message of the angels. In faith they go to tell his followers where to meet him. And the disciples meet him only as they have left Jerusalem and go to Galilee. And only those who exercise faith and act on the witness of others meet him today. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, may you impress on us what we have seen and heard through the eyes of Matthew. For those who doubt and are skeptical, may you grant them a fresh disposition of heart and mind. And for those who have put their faith in Christ, may they be filled with faith and hope and boldness and joy. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.